0: This is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. With me today is Johan van Bentham, University Professor of Pure and Applied Logic at the University of Amsterdam, and Henry Walgrave Stewart Professor of Philosophy at Stanford University. He is here to talk to us about logical dynamics. Johan van Pentham, welcome.
1: Indeed. Uh, thank you, Matt, for doing this. I'm uh, looking forward
0: to it. I guess maybe we can just begin with a discussion about what logic is. What is it that logicians study?
1: Well, (laughs) there is the traditional answer about uh, the object of logic. Then you'd say that logicians study valid inferences and maybe highlight it in mathematical proofs as maybe also the broader conception of logic that I'm interested in, as you know, for instance, in the new book, which I've just written, in which I actually try to push the boundary of that definition towards logic as a study of information flow and everything structured that can be found there.
0: And one really nifty example you like to give about sharing an exchange of information between people uh, has to do with a family ordering some dishes at a restaurant. How does that example go?
1: Yes, it's an example that was actually uh, born uh, out of pressure because uh, I had to give a, a lecture about logic to children age around eight. As I was preparing, uh, it, it actually occurred to me that if I had to think of concrete scenarios where logic plays a role, uh, you would actually see various things happening at the same time. Okay, so let's have the scenario. You're in a restaurant with your mother and father. Let's say there's three people. And you've each ordered one dish. Let's say there's a fish, meat, and vegetarian. I was actually a bit worried with the children because do they actually go to restaurants? But they do, even at age eight. And, okay, now the following happens. And this is something you can really see in restaurants all the time. Somebody has taken your order, but out of the kitchen comes some new person carrying three plates. So what do we see then? So this new person has an informational problem to solve... ...because he needs to hand out the right dish to the right person. And this is actually, you know, one can ask. So I ask the children, I ask audiences... ...and we all agree what you're going to see. The first thing that the waiter is going to do is ask a question. So for instance, he's going to ask, who has the fish? When that gets answered, he puts the fish dish... ...and he has two dishes left. So what we're going to see is another question. For instance, who has the meat? He puts that dish... And then comes, of course, an interesting moment because he's holding one more dish, but now he just puts that without asking. Okay. So to me, this is a very natural scenario that belongs together. And an interesting issue for logic is what informational actions have we actually seen here?
0: A traditional answer to that would be something like, once the waiter has learned that, let's say, the mother has the fish and the father has the meat, he can then infer that the child has the vegetarian dish. You know, it's um, in virtue of his grasp of principles of good and bad reasoning that he's able to come to this conclusion without asking a third question.
1: Right. Right. And I, I totally agree with that. Of course, there could be discussion about how conscious this inference actually is, but I would think of that last action as an inference. But to me, the scenario has a unity. If I only say that the last part is logic... I actually distort what's taking place, because the waiter had only one problem to solve, which was where to put these dishes. And to me, for instance, the questions and the answers that we also see in the scenario are equally important logical acts. They provide information. That information is then combined with an act of inference. But the whole episode, so to speak, would to me be a sort of logical paradigm on which you can do logical analysis.
0: So in other words, it's not just the business of a logician to study how it is that the waiter was able to move from the incomplete information that he started with to the complete information about what everybody in the table is getting. But it's also about other things like in what circumstances do we ask a question and what do we communicate to other people by the fact that we asked this particular question rather than another question and so on and so forth.
1: Yes, I would agree with that, so if I to to say it very strongly, I would say that asking a question that I consider as just as logical an action as drawing an inference, just to make the point very strongly. but I can also talk about this in a bit more general terms to make the same point differently so For instance, think about science. This is actually something that occurred to me as I was walking to our meeting this morning. So, you know what this building looks like, right? We're actually sitting in this wing with the ILLC, the mathematics department, and some other departments that are pretty much into inferencing and proof. However, on the roof of the building, you see these two strange objects, sort of roundish tower like objects. Maybe you think too much or you don't observe enough, but otherwise you would have seen them. (laughs) What are they? Uh, I was just up there last week, so they are actually the uh, the telescopes of the astronomy department. So the astronomy department actually, of course, in order to do that brand of science, there is two things that have to happen at the same time. Of course, there's deep proof-like thinking about cosmology and so on, but there's also brute facts that you observe, And to think of astronomers, that was clear to me, both sources are equally important. It's not as if that telescope is some sort of inferior way for setting up the final phase of astronomical reasoning. No, it actually comes together as a unity. And in my book, actually, so I asked myself the question, what are the basic informational actions that logic should be concerned with? And I actually draw some analogies with uh, thoughts that were around about this in ancient logical traditions in India and China. And basically, here's a very reasonable set of three things. There's inference, there's observation, and there's asking questions. And those three things seem to cover a lot of the informational activity that takes place as we solve problems. And those three things together, for me, would be a very natural, coherent agenda for logic to study.
0: So one striking characteristic of those three sources of information you just mentioned, questions, observation, and inference, is that in the question case, multiple people are involved. It seems, you know, questioning seems to be an intrinsically social activity.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely true. So another, if you wish, important aspect to the way I think about this now. So one thing is just to increase the number of informational actions that you take seriously. But for instance, if you just took inference and uh, observation, you could still think of that as something I can do on my own. Right? But questions, uh, of course, are sort of model for others coming in, and this is also an interesting divide. For instance, what I found with some colleagues is that they, they actually see this as highly problematic, because the idea is that social features of informational situations are not what logicians should worry about. But I think that these social features for instance of questions are first crucial to the way we function even in cognitive science there's these various theories that maybe it's our social skills rather than <laughs> our individual skills so to speak that make us so unique and moreover they have a lot of interesting structure which just calls out for logical analysis well I'm not the first to say that and in fact observations like this have a long pedigree in philosophy and economics, other areas. I mean, just take a question, right? So suppose that um, I asked you, uh, you know, some questions about this whole podcast thing as we were uh, sitting here. The very fact that I'm asking this question actually conveys some information to you, not so much about podcasts, but about what I know, right? Because what you could figure out from my questions was that Johann actually doesn't have a strong technical <laughs> grasp Right of this subject, but that's fine, right? That's actually also, you know, interesting information in itself. And of course, there's even more to that scenario because the fact that I'm asking you, well, I mean lots of things, but in this particular case, of course, it means that I think that you're actually the expert which actually conveys information about what I think about your information about a particular subject. That's already higher order. But these things are, it seems to me, crucial to understanding how we actually deal with information and how we keep things stable as we communicate. I think you know this, Matt. So I started out as a student of physics. As you know, in physics, one of the big changes has been from, let's say, Aristotelian physics, where, you know, you think about objects and their natural place. And then actually what happens in the 17th century is that physics becomes the study of many body problems. So the strange thing is that I don't understand how you behave by thinking about your weight. I actually understand how you behave in relation to me or other objects. Same here. It could well be that even from a logical point of view, some of the crucial structure we're only going to see, yeah, in this case then of course not many body problems, but many mind problems.
0: This research program that you have initiated and given the name Logical Dynamics is interested not just in sort of individual introspective processes of, you know, reasoning, uh, drawing inference, and so forth, but actually in how we share information with one another and also not just how we share information with one another, but how we coordinate what we know and what we don't know and communicate to other people what is it that we need to know and what is it that we know that the other person might not know. And so on and so forth now, traditionally, logicians are interested in rules of good and bad reasoning, so for example, if it's the case that Matt is either in Amsterdam or in Paris, and it's also the case that he's not in Paris, then it's completely reasonable for me to conclude that he is in Amsterdam. just to give I'm one yeah <laughs> nobody would disagree with that. Um, But what are the laws or principles of the exchange of information about?
1: Well, I can see where you're heading. So normally in logic, we have a pretty good idea, like what are the sort of important things that we, laws of the reasoning that we want to focus on, whether valid or invalid. But I guess what you're asking is, suppose that you look at all these things as a logician. Presumably, you have a sort of logic angle on these things. What sort of principles is it that you want to study? Well, think of it like this. Maybe first take an example of this knowledge. Maybe I can best explain it by contrasting it with other issues that logicians have thought about when they thought about knowledge and information. So, for instance, if you look at logical systems that deal with information that agents have or the knowledge based on that information, of course, there are a number of important debates about key principles that you want to understand some of these principles are the basic laws of the knowledge operator like for instance modal distribution right if i know something say if i know that phi and i know that phi implies psi do i also know that psi so that's typical logical thinking about the form of a particular inference about knowledge you know that might be valid or not you know that you want to clarify using the logical analysis Other things that come into focus in that traditional approach are, for instance, issues like introspection. So if I know something, do I know that I know it? That's a typical logician's question, but it's also clear to see what the conceptual import is, why it would be important to get clear on that. Now, if you do take the point of view I've just described, you're going to add further logical rules or further logical issues to this set. So your first issue is, which informational actions do I actually want to study, and how am I going to put them into the logical language? Because they've got to be there if I want to do logic on them. So simplest example, Uh, let's say that we talk about actions of public announcement. So what's publicly announced is that phi is the case, phi is true, there is no hocus pocus, so I'm just assuming the simplest case that there is some public fact that becomes known. Then the key logical question, from my point of view, becomes one of change. There are certain things you know or don't know before the event takes place. There's other things that you know and don't know after the event takes place. What the dynamic logician wants to understand is what is, if you wish, the recursion step or the dynamic step. What knowledge are you going to have after the event took place? And preferably... Can you relate that knowledge to things that you knew before? Because if you can find such principles, then you have a sort of principled way of understanding how your old knowledge plus the event creates the new knowledge. That is it describing in abstract terms. The reality of these systems is actually twofold. One is you can do that. So you can actually study this in logical systems that add informational events, for instance, to the logic of knowledge. You can write such actions, but it's actually interesting precisely because it's not totally obvious what these laws should be.
0: I could imagine someone thinking this was all there was to say about how announcing something affects what people in a group know. A group of people are seated at dinner, and then one of them says, Jane is not coming to dinner tonight. And the effect of saying that is that, okay, now everybody knows that Jane is not coming to dinner tonight. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, you might be forgiven for thinking that um, these uh, simple updates, there's basically very little for a logician to do. But actually, even let's suppose that we're really talking about such a totally reliable uh, announcement of something that's true, you'll soon find that it's more complicated than you think. So, for instance, let me take what you just said. What you suggested was that if we get a public announcement that some proposition is the case then the result of that is that phi becomes knowledge. Is that true? That would be a short end to the logic of public announcement. But is this really true? Well, for factual assertions like what you just said about somebody not being there or not coming to the party, yes. But as soon as the assertions themselves could actually be epistemic, it becomes up for grabs. And maybe I should say first, now maybe you think, but why would we ever want to make epistemic assertions Then I say, life is full of it. You tell me that you don't know, or you tell me something about what you do know. That's absolutely crucial to the, you know, our communication, collaboration, things like that. Okay, so let's suppose that what can be announced is in fact something that refers to knowledge. For instance, let's suppose that this person said something else, which is equally true. He says, ladies and gentlemen, you don't know it, but Jane is not coming. (laughs) Of course, you could say that's maybe a bit prolix. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's something that he might say. After that event has taken place, you're not going to say that it's common knowledge or just knowledge in the group, that they don't know it, but Jane is not coming. What they know is that Jane is not coming, and in fact, it's common knowledge. In other words, the very assertion that was made though true at the time, it doesn't become knowledge as a whole, it actually becomes knowledge in a more complex way. And of course, Matt, you're a philosopher, of course, what you recognize here is one of the many forms of Moore's paradox. This is something that philosophers actually thought about.
0: Okay, so that's an additional complexity, right? Uh, You know, if I say, you don't know this, but Jane isn't coming to dinner tonight. Clearly, that doesn't mean the result of saying that is that everybody now knows that they don't know that Jane is coming to dinner tonight. So that's a um, complexity to be accounted for in a theory of this.
1: So if you think of logical laws of this phenomenon, a bit similar to the law that you gave when you talked about uh, this propositional inference, we're trying to find a logical principle that would tell us when is some formula psi known after the information has been given that phi. There's an informational event, the public announcement of phi, There is knowledge about arbitrary proposition psi afterwards, and what the logical principle has to tell us is when this is the case. Well, the only thing I'm going to say is that there are valid actions for this situation which capture that precisely. So this is called public announcement logic. What it actually basically does is it relates uh, the knowledge of the proposition psi after the event to conditional knowledge that the agent would have before, but... It's trickier than just saying conditional logic or conditional probability because one also needs to analyze how the truth value change that we just talked about, like in this Moore example, so to speak, could affect the psi. Now, that is something for the logical system, but basically, the point I'm making is that there are such laws, but they're not trivial because they have to be able to deal, and they do, but they have to be able to deal with Moore type phenomena. And again, you know, type phenomena are not just a simple philosophical conundrum because there's actually many conversational scenarios and famous puzzles where you see these changes. For instance, think of the Muddy Children puzzle. The whole family of such puzzles where basically a puzzle gets solved because people tell each other that they still don't know the answer. But at the end of that process of saying, I still don't know, I still don't know, The end result of that is not that everybody now happily knows that they don't know, (laughs) the end result is that they do know. And it's one requirement, and in fact one application of the logics I'm talking about, that they can describe that information flow precisely, including the right change at the right moment from ignorance to knowledge.
0: So what are some other examples of these changes in the information possessed by different members of a group? besides publicly announcing something that the logical framework you're working on is interested in studying
1: yes so public announcement fits very well with knowledge but then that's of course a natural starting point but the reality is of communication and action that a lot of what we do is not based on knowledge but on belief right then there's just no way around that And in fact, we shouldn't even view that just negatively because either you follow Popper or you look at other epistemologists, it's in fact the process of belief revision that seems very typical for our rational behavior. So it's not just about being right all the time and saying as little as possible to stick to what's right. Um, The point is also that we can be wrong many times and then there's a sort of, if you wish, informational quality in changing those beliefs those wrong beliefs as needed. So how could those beliefs arise? Because a lot of information that we get doesn't have this 100% public reliability that public announcement has. So what I'm also looking at a lot nowadays is actually what I call soft announcements. So these are acts where you get information that's only reliable up to a certain extent. It's information that could in fact be false. It's information that affects beliefs. And it's information that may have to be corrected. As you see, that, of course, adds another dimension of complexity. But it's still well within the sort of logical methods I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, so maybe an example of mostly reliable but not airtight, absolutely reliable information might be generally uh, the bus stops on that corner every morning at 9 a.m. Maybe every once in a while some crazy event might happen to prevent the bus from coming and it comes at 8.55 instead. But, you know, generally, uh, I can count on the information that what it says in the bus schedule.
1: Yes, a lot of things are like that. And that's, of course, also true in conversation. Moreover, I take it as a serious point that we're actually able to deal with that since we're able to deal with it in a rather systematic way. I think of it as something that fits very well with logic. And the other point, which I'll just repeat, even though it's sometimes a dangerous one with students, is that in fact I see an enormous intellectual quality which you only see in this setting, and that is namely the quality of correcting ourselves. So if you take the traditional ideal, maybe also an epistemology of some sort of logician who only sticks to what he knows and performs inferences that pile truth on truth, what you actually don't see is a sort of major feature of human intelligence, which is precisely that we can do a lot more And in particular, um, we have beliefs that go far beyond our knowledge, but we have this ability to correct. Why that's dangerous with the students is that, you know, so sometimes I get overexcited about this, and then I say, well, so for instance, when you take exams, the important thing is not to give the correct answers, but the important thing is to find out what you would do (laughs) If I actually pointed out to you that your answer was wrong, I've realized that there will be so many repercussions to the grade system if I follow this through <laughs> <laughs> that I keep it just in
0: theory. Okay, so another phenomenon that the formal framework you're working on is interested in capturing is you know, how is it that we revise our old beliefs in the light of new information that's inconsistent with them? And it's, you know, it doesn't just happen willy-nilly. They're actually you know, pretty strict rules that that reasoning process obeys. Absolutely, yes. So another connection that you pursued in uh, your work on this is with various aspects of game theory. You know, maybe you could say something very briefly about what game theory is and how
1: oh, that the really questions
0: nice. we've been talking about connect to it.
1: Yes, well, the way it relates to me is that, you know, Matt, what we've been talking about now is, you could say, single informational actions. So it could be drawing a single inference, or making a single observation, or asking one question and getting an answer. But there's another dimension to these interactions, and that is that they take place over time. And there's actually various things that you will only see by also bringing in that temporal dimension. So It's very seldom that you have an informational episode where it just hinges on one inference or one particular event. There's actually a number of things that happen in sequence. Even with questions, you can already see that, because suppose that I ask you a question, and suppose that we don't know each other very well, then in addition to the actual content of the question, you're probably also going to ask yourself, why is he asking this, right? right? That why question is not about the content of the question, Right. But it's actually a question like what scenario are we in? What sort of conversation or maybe what sort of game? That further dimension, I think, is crucial to what you might call making sense in some broader sense, well, quote unquote, of the term. And that's one of the reasons why I think these logics interface very well with games. The other reason for looking at games is actually a reason which also Stolnaker has mentioned in another context. The nice thing about games is that they're often little concrete scenarios that we have very vivid ideas about. So we play them, we understand them, so to speak. So they focus a lot of things that you could theorize about in general in very concrete scenarios, which can be pretty rich and where you can then test these logics and see what they have to say. So that's one strong reason for being interested in games. And that, of course, also leads to a story by itself. That's going to be my next book. Uh, That's one of the ways in which logic is interfacing with game theory these days. And that's actually an area where a lot is happening. I think it's affecting logic, but it's also affecting game theory a bit. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens as this development continues.
0: As we observed before... One thing they convey to me by asking me for some information is the fact that they don't know that information, but actually in many of the situations we find ourselves in, the setup of the conversation is much more complicated, and the participants in the conversation are actually working together towards some long-term goal that involves not just one step, but you know, an elaborate coordination of several different steps over time that lead to different consequences, and, um, and that's the sort of thing that game theory can help us to.
1: Yes, because game theorists, of course, have thought about this in their way. Of course, logicians also have their own viewpoint on what happens here. And, for instance, um, one thing which I actually see happening through this contact nowadays, which I think is also very relevant to the view of logic I'm talking about, is that the result is neither traditional logic nor game theory, but rather something I would call a theory of play so theory where you actually look at the information that flows, how different agents deal with it, right? So it's not just a game. It's actually how it's played. I think these logics can help there, but it's also uh, you know, a subject that has features of both areas, but it's not
0: exactly either. So we've already alluded to an old philosophical puzzle that goes by the name of Moore's Paradox, uh, which is you know, we have the feeling that saying it is raining but I don't believe that it's raining is somehow contradictory but then there's the question about how exact, in what way is it contradictory because you haven't actually said something and the negation of that something but nonetheless we feel that it would be incoherent to say that do you think that the questions that you're exploring here have the capacity to help us make progress on you know understanding either that or maybe some other philosophical puzzles about knowledge
1: yes, yes I do think that Although maybe my focus wouldn't be so much very particular puzzles. I think we can. For instance, I, I've written about the Fitch paradox in the, you know, verificationist views of logic. But maybe the better example is just to show a sort of shift in mindset. So, you know, I feel that with this dynamic view of logic... I even read philosophical texts and problems differently because I'm looking for features of the situation that wouldn't be dealt with in traditional logical solutions. So let's take an example. Uh, let's talk about definitions of knowledge. Of course, there's this whole wonderful literature in epistemology uh, where the last decades has actually given an array of uh, uh, new ideas about uh, how logic might be defined. There's relevant alternative theories like Dretzky's work or Lewis's variants. These tracking theories like Nozick and so on, and of course there's a very lively current debate about these things. Well, from this dynamics point of view, I think all these things should be taken very seriously by logicians. But what I would focus on is, in the descriptions of the examples, what acts are taking place. So for instance, uh, I can go back to a classic like, say, Dretsky's paper... And I read it, I think, differently from most philosophers. So, what I read is which verbs are there which denote actions, like the actions that set up the space of relevant alternatives, actions of ruling out, actions of adding an alternative, or if I go to beliefs, actions of spotting a mistake. So, whenever I see an action that might be epistemologically relevant, I think, okay, the logical discussion can now be what is the natural repertoire of epistemic actions? Let's put these into the logic, and let's try to understand the combined logic of knowledge and acts of ruling out or raising alternatives. And I think, I'm not saying that that will solve, uh, you know, all the outstanding problems of epistemology, but I do think of this as a sort of interesting further dimension to what we're actually seeing. Sometimes that even goes so far that I feel that sometimes I read scenarios or I discuss with philosophers where I think that the actions are the most important thing. For instance, um, there was a discussion once which was about, uh, it's about some people who miscommunicate, and then they actually notice that they miscommunicate and they clarify the situation. Now, the whole talk was about this issue of miscommunication and finding ways to make sure that that would never occur. Whereas my analysis would be, first, there are no guarantees ways of avoiding miscommunication. The fabulous human activity is to be able to spot miscommunications. That's one. And the second activity is to correct the situation. So I said, to me, the main philosophical interest in this scenario is not the drama of the miscommunication but actually the drama of the successive stages that it comes to light and that something is done about it. And that will be a good illustration. I think these dynamic logics have some dimensions to offer to philosophical research.
0: The framework that is normally referred to as classical logic, which philosophy students now learn in introductory logic courses, in that framework, the argument patterns that you study seem fairly close to the kinds of things we say in everyday conversation. P or Q, not P, therefore Q, seems to look more or less like Matt is either in Amsterdam or Paris. Matt is not in Paris, therefore Matt is in Amsterdam. But when we get into formal languages that describe events of the knowledge in a group of people changing, then it seems like the uh, sentences written in that formal language they start to look a little bit less like the things we say in everyday conversation. And I guess that raises the question, once we move from thinking about logic as a sort of static process performed by individuals to this sort of um, coordination effort between a group of people, does that change logic? Does that make it look less like the study of things people say in everyday conversation and, and how those work and more like something else or...
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. It's definitely something to which I don't have a definitive answer, but it's something I also you know, think about. So I think it's definitely true that the traditional logical constants that we study seem to be correlates of things that occur quite concretely in natural language if I now say that various sorts of informational actions could also be at center stage in the logical theory and have their own laws and behavior um, what are they correlated with? Isn't that a much higher abstraction level so to speak so aren't we crossing some genuine boundary here well, at the moment, I'm a bit open about this. I think of this a sort of issue that's really worth thinking about. First, of course, it's not totally clear. I think a lot of these actions are encoded in natural language, but we're talking about actions that maybe traditionally haven't received so much attention, or, or words that traditionally haven't received so much attention from logicians, say, verbs like learning, right? So, epistemic logic is about knowledge. Why did they choose pick on the verb to know, whereas you might think that in natural language there's a sort of natural family of of verbs that come together, know, learn, (laughs) maybe even forget, and things like that. So if we drew those families a bit more widely, we would actually maybe find more correlates of the dynamic actions. But this is one way of thinking about it. The other is that if I think of language use, I, I think of it as a sort of balance between things that are encoded in syntax and things that are encoded in yeah, the way we play the language game, if you wish. And languages, even as we know, differ in how much they put explicitly in syntax and how much they leave to the context of the language use. So some are more specific that you have to say certain things, some leave it to the understanding of the... You could also think that some of the dynamics actually comes from this contextual practice of the language use, which I think of is just as stable as the syntax itself. You see, So then it would still be concrete, even though it's not written down the same way in which language use has lots of features, that so to speak, even though you don't write them, I think, are stable. So that would be, if I think of it, more on the empirical side. But I could take your question a bit differently, namely. Look, all these great logicians and philosophers of logic have thought about what's logical about a logical constants. And there's one nice book after another (laughs) to actually explain in which sense propositional operators and quantifiers are logical. You know, shouldn't we also have a philosophical understanding of what makes a public announcement or a soft announcement or a question or whatever logical? And then I'll just have to say, I can't give you such an answer right now we're in a sort of expanding mode, but actually I think it would be great if philosophers of logic were actually to turn to questions like this and think, look, here's a proposed agenda extension. Let's apply our minds to what's happening here and what makes these operators in these dynamic logics logical as opposed to, of course, any sort of operator which you could describe like hand-waving or you know, opening or closing a window. There's got to be something logical about them, what it is. That's a question to which I'm afraid I still owe you an answer.
0: Johan van Bentham, thank you very much for joining me. Oh,
1: you're welcome. It was uh,
0: fun. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian.uchicago.edu L-U-C-I-A-N, slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.